Hello, everyone. This is the Female Founder and Funders podcast, and I'm your host, Elaine Zelby. Each episode, I speak with amazing women to discuss various macro trends and the future of different industries. We'll tease out insights and predictions from the ladies who've gone deep in those different niches and who are extremely passionate about the spaces. We discuss where they think the world is heading, why, and what needs to change for that world to become a reality. My guest today is Felicia Kakura, the founder and CEO of Binti, a company that's reinventing the foster care and adoption process. She started the company in 2014 after seeing firsthand how hard it was for her sister to adopt. Felicia, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. I've been a fan for a long time, and I'm really excited about what you're building at Binti and also see it as an example, not to really be cliche, but as a company that can do well and also do good. So thank you for coming. Thank you so much for having me. I'd love to just start and hear a little bit more about your background and how you came to start Binti. Yeah, so... In terms of background, I, I studied economics undergrad. I worked at McKinsey for a few years, and then I worked at an early stage tech company um, and and learned and got into product. And then I started Binti. And the reason I started Binti was because my sister went through an adoption process, and it was just such a difficult, complicated, stressful process. And then I realized that there were so many children in need. Um, my sister told me the anecdote of you know, she adopted internationally and there were 300 children in the orphanage and, you know, they were the only parents to visit that year. And so I was just really confused why it was such a difficult process for families when there's so many children in need. And it's been in the back of my mind for a while. And once I was working in tech, I realized that tech could make the process easier for families and ultimately help more families, more, more children have families. I read an early blog post that you wrote, and one of the statistics just really jumped out at me. You had said that every year there are 6 million children that are orphaned worldwide, 3 million families that express an interest in adoption, 1 million families that take steps to adopt, but only 250,000 parents end up adopting. When you kind of dug into the space, did you find any things that were just totally broken, or what were the insights you you learned from that? Yeah, so, um, I mean, you know, another kind of related stat, you know, which is, which on the other side of of children is that, you know, there's, um, there's millions of children in orphanages around the world and there's over 400,000 children in the U S in foster care and 30% of, um, of homeless people are former foster youth and over 25% of prison inmates are former foster youth. So, you know, the children that, you know, don't have families, don't have a fair chance at life. And yet there's all these families, like you mentioned, trying to, foster and adopt that drop out of the process because it's such a hard process. And what I found, um, I so I actually spent four months shadowing the county of San Francisco's um, foster care and adoption team. And what I learned was that the application process for families was entirely on paper and it was just really cumbersome for them. And in talking to the families, they found it really frustrating. And then on the social worker side, they were using a 70-column Excel spreadsheet to track all of the families and all of the requirements to approve all the families. And so it was really hard for them to keep track of what they were doing. And they were kind of just losing track of families and um, things were falling through the cracks, which would cause you know delays, which would cause families to get frustrated and dropped out. So it was both like the process from the family side and also the process on the social workers that um, was really unwieldy and, and difficult. Yeah, it's kind of hard to believe that there's still so many paper processes in 2019. I know. 
can you walk us through a little bit what the technology you guys have actually built at Binti and who is it facing? Is it facing the families? Is it facing the social workers, the government agencies? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's facing both the families and the social workers. And in the future, it'll face the children as well. So for the families, it's basically like TurboTax to become a foster or adoptive family. It lets them apply online, um, do the whole application online, e-sign everything. It's mobile friendly. And then for uh, for the social workers, it is a way for them to see all the families and what's done and what's not done. It lets them track background checks and all the steps they need to do to approve families quickly and easily. And um, and then it also helps them. Our second um, product helps match families and children. So when a child comes into foster care, we have all the data on the families and we can say, okay, these are the um, these are the families that would be the best fit for that child based on, um, you know, keeping children in their school, keeping them with their siblings. Um, and then the, like, you know, if a family says I'm looking for this age, gender, and, you know, matching the characteristics of the child with the family. And before, you know, um, for the matching part, uh, social workers just had binders of families they would flip through and, and try to match, you know, and imagine trying to flip through thousands of families and trying to match um, the best family and the best child. So we're able to make better matches and hopefully result in, um, you know, more stability and like uh, more of the matches actually working out. As you were getting started, what was the hardest part of actually getting it off the ground? The hardest part was finding product market fit. So, um, I, you know, I knew I, the problem that I wanted to solve, I wanted to help more children join families, but I didn't know quite how to solve it. And the first few things I tried didn't work. So the first thing I tried was, you know, I wanted to help families like my sister navigate an adoption process. So I raised a little bit of money, grew a team and started helping families and holding their hands through the process. But what we realized was, you know, the government controls most of the process. So we were sort of holding people's hands through a process we didn't have any control over. And then the other problem is that families only adopt once ever. So uh, we didn't have any repeat customers. So we, you know, basically our business model and the way we were approaching it wasn't solving the problem and, and wasn't sustainable. So um, actually like made a really hard decision of letting go of the team and kind of going back to ground zero. And actually during that time, my co-founder left as well. Um, and so it got back to just me. And, and that's when I, you know, I thought, okay, maybe working with the government would be a better fit because we could solve the problem from the inside working with directly with the government. And we can also like the government does adoptions and foster care every year. So they could be repeat customers. So I thought it might be able to solve both problems. And that's when I lined up the four months of shadowing the San Francisco County team and, you know, and then uh, launching like a, a gov tech version of Binti. And then we've built the team back up around that. So the, co- the company's actually gone from one person to six, back to one up to 23 now. And, um, working with the government has gone a lot better. Um, and you know, we've, in the first two years, we helped about 200 families and in the last two years we've helped over 12,000. So we're reaching a lot more people and having a lot more impact. Wow. That's a, that's a crazy story. When you had to lay off the team and your co-founder left, what gave you the conviction to keep going and to ultimately build it back up from ground zero? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was a really hard time. So I was crying a lot. Like I, you know, when I was letting go of people, I was crying to them as I was letting them go. It's, I can laugh about it now a little because it's so, uh, 
far back, but people were so nice. And actually everyone I let go of told me, we love working with you. We love the mission. Happy to help out nights and weekends if we can. Um, We shut down our little office, which was also really sad. Um, And then when my co-founder left, that was really sad as well. Um, But I think that the thing that kept me going was I just knew this was a big problem and I really cared about solving it. You know, I knew that there's these children that need families and when they age out of foster care without a family, you know, a huge percentage end up homeless or incarcerated with all of these bad outcomes. And, and it's just really not fair for them. And then there's families that want the children. So it's not like, so, so I'm just like, I'm not solving the problem. Right. And I know I'm smart and I know I'm working hard. I'm just not, why am I not solving this? So it was very like, you know, I still cared about solving a problem and, um, and that's, that's what kept me going. And working in, in not only a government regulated space, but now working directly with the government, uh, I had some experiences myself at a startup trying to partner with government and sell into government. And it's a totally different world. It's a different language. It's a different process. What have been the biggest learnings in terms of uh, dealing with the government? Mm. Well, one of the things is I actually love working with the government. I, I didn't know that I would. Um, you know, there's different perceptions about bureaucracy and that kind of thing. But, you know, at least in our field, we work with social workers and they're just the nicest people in the world. You know, like mm-hmm. people go into social work because they're just amazing human beings and like, you know, really care about people. And so the people we work with every day are just incredibly nice. And, you know, they also have are used to having really bad tools and software. And so they're really grateful for the work that we do, which is really nice. Um, and then I would say that, uh, I don't know, I I think there's a lot of negativity about working with government, but we, we've had a great, we've had a really great experience and there's been a really fast adoption. Um, you know, there's 58 counties in California in, in two and a half years, we're in 35 of the 58. So most counties in California are customers of Binti in a relatively short period of time. Um, so I think there's a perception that maybe government moves really slowly, but we've been able to, you know, grow pretty quickly in working with government customers. Has it spread primarily by word of mouth or how have you gotten into so many different counties? Yeah. So um, word of mouth is really big because a lot of the, you know, county agencies know the other counties. And so they'll, if they find something that's helping them, they'll share it and they're happy to be a reference. And the nice thing is they know each other, but they don't compete with each other. So they're really happy to help each other, which is really nice. Um, so that, that's been the biggest thing is when we work in a county, we'll ask them for introductions to their neighboring counties. And going back a little bit, when you rebuilt the company up when it was just you, did you end up bringing on another co-founder or did you go at it alone as kind of a solo founder at that point? I brought on another co-founder, um, actually. So Gabe uh, Copley is my co-founder and he actually was our first engineering hire in that first version of Binti. And I actually let him go, um, during, you know, when we laid people off and he was one of the people that said, I'm happy to help out nights and weekends. And he went and got another job. And then when I was shadowing San Francisco, I came up with some, some, um, you know, things that I wanted to build out. And he worked with me nights and weekends, even though he had another job to, to build it out. And then when, when San Francisco agreed to pay us, I reapproached him and I was like, Hey, you know, I know I let you go like five months ago, but I think we're really onto something and you've totally proven your loyalty to me and Binti. And do you want to rejoin as my co-founder CTO? And he said, yes, and quit his job. He had just joined and, and rejoined. 
Wow, that's great. Clearly lots of alignment and conviction there. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember the first adoption or foster that ever happened on the Binti platform? Um, yeah, I remember I remember the first, you know, people that went through it. Um, the thing is, you know, we care so much about ultimately, you know, the children and families, but most of them we don't get to meet in person, you know, because we're we're the software that's helping them do it online. And, and we do have like a chat feature that they chat with us and ask questions and stuff like that. But a lot of times we don't meet them in person. So it is really special when we do get to meet people in person. Um, I was actually just at a conference this week in Philadelphia and there was a mix of social workers and families there. And I met, um, I met a, a couple that they got approved on Binti and they adopted their son on Binti through the matching. Um, and it was, it's really fulfilling. And we, we, you know, we took a picture and we hugged and it's like, those moments are really special because, you know, day to day, we're sort of like improving the software and fixing this bug and adding this feature. And it's, it's a really nice reminder to get to meet the families in person that we're helping. I would imagine because it's such an emotionally charged time for people, especially because, you know, historically it has been so challenging. So I'm sure anytime you can get that feedback from the families that you're making such a big difference, it must be a great feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Since you've started the company in 2014, have you seen an increase or a decrease or kind of just stability in terms of the number of children who need families and also the number of families that are looking to adopt or to foster? Mm-hmm. The number of children is increasing, unfortunately, due to the opioid ep- epidemic. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really driving the number up in a lot of states. Uh, and then in terms of the number of families, I, you know, I don't most like the people that kind of track statistics on foster care don't tend to track that. But from what I see, I think there's so much untapped interest from families that are like turned away from the system that I think, so I think there's a huge potential to increase it. Um, You know, as I mentioned in the agencies we work in, we've helped approve 60% more families than before, you know, than um, before working with us. So clearly there's a lot of families that were not getting through the approval process before that are doing it now because it's easier. So I think we can, we can have a big impact on the number of families. And are there certain geos that you're seeing more traction with both on the adoption side, as well as where the children are coming from? Uh, Yeah. I mean, there is where the children are coming from. There's, there's correlation with, um, you know, socioeconomic factors. So, um, Unfortunately, you know, like lower income areas tend to have more foster children. Um, And then, yeah, in in terms of families, there's there's different there's different types of families. So there's families that, um, you know, they're looking to adopt and grow their family through adoption. There's families that they, you know, just love taking care of kids and they want to be like a foster family and just help take care of kids as their kind of as their profession. But you know, in a, hopefully in like a loving way. And, and, and those families are even open to children because about half of children are on the adoption track and about half are on the reunification track. So reunifying with their biological families, but they need a place temporarily. And so those families are really great for those children. They can provide a loving home in the meantime. Um, You know, there are certain families that are kind of in it for the money. And, uh, you know, I don't know the exact percentage of that, but I think that what we're trying to do is, you know, increase the number of families so much that the counties can 
cannot use those families anymore. You know, that they, they have options and they can go with like the best families that are in it for the right reasons. Right now, there's such a shortage of families that counties have to use even those families, unfortunately. Are you guys focused right now just on the U.S. market or do you also deal with cross-border adoptions and fosters? Right now, um, just the U.S., um, but we are actually in discussions with a number of other countries to do what we're doing in the U.S. in those other countries. And they have really similar like foster care and adoption systems in, in other countries. So we would work in those countries to be their domestic foster care and adoption system like we are here. And then long term, we want to do cross-border adoption since we'll have all the data of the children and families in each country, we'll be able to facilitate cross-border adoption. But that's actually not our first and primary goal. The first goal would actually be, you know, try to help them stay in their community of origin, you know, with with a local family. Yeah, I would imagine, too, it just has to add so much more complexity to deal with different governments, cross-border, everything like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm curious, in the families that you're seeing in the U.S. with adoption and foster, what are you seeing as kind of the male-female dynamic? And I don't know, because you're not as, as um, family-facing, but I'm just curious whether you've noticed any patterns, whether equal number of men and women are involved in the processes, are they taking on equal responsibilities in childcare, taking time off work? Um, have you seen any patterns there? Oh, that's interesting. I, I don't have a lot of detail on this, but I, I do know that there's more women that are that are foster parents than men. Um, you know, there, there's there's quite a few couples um, of, of men and women. Then there's same sex couples of on both sides, and then um, and then but then there's also a lot of just sing, single um, parents, and most of the single parents are are women. And are you seeing? Do most companies that offer some kind of maternity paternity leave do they offer similar things for people that foster or, or go through adoption? That's a great question. I mean, our company definitely does. Um, we think that whether you're having a biological child or bringing in a child through foster care adoption, um, it's adding a child to your home and, and you should get paternity leave. I think it's it, there's a trend in that direction of, of, um, of employers offering it for both. But I, I think that there's still quite a few that don't offer it for both. Yeah, this is just more of a personal thing. But for a long time, I've held this belief that there will only ever be gender parity in the workplace and just in society when there becomes a mandatory minimum, but also equal amount of maternity and paternity leave for natural birth, adoption, foster care, any type of, you know, ch- taking a child in. Um, I'm curious if you uh, if you have any thoughts on that. I completely agree with that. Yes. Um, so not just, you know, so you made like two points. One is like not just for biological and adoption and foster care, but then also for, for maternity and paternity leave. Um, I 100% agree with that. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm banging the drum as much as I can on the maternity paternity leave has to be mandatory and it has to be equal. That's I, I think that would make huge, huge strides in terms of gender parity. I agree with that. One question I have as a first-time founder: what would you, what advice would you give other first-time founders, be that female or male? Mm-hmm. Let's see. Um, I would say spend a lot of time talking to your customers and really deeply understanding the problem and uh, focus 100% of your effort on finding product market fit. Until you have product market fit, you shouldn't really be doing other things. I think I made the mistake. It's very easy to be busy as a founder doing random things. Um, 
going to a conference, doing marketing, hiring and managing people. Um, we, we grew the team to six people before we had product market fit. And I think it was a big distraction. Um, so, in, you know, if I were to do it again, and when I did it kind of the, in V2 of, of Binti, we stayed just, just me and Gabe until we had product market fit. Um, basically that there were incredible customer demand that was, you know, we couldn't keep up with. Um, so I, yeah, I think, I think that until you have that, you shouldn't focus on other things and you should just keep talking to customers, understanding their problems, testing things until you have something that is really taking off. I think that sounds like fantastic advice for any founder. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, one other thing I wanted to ask you a little bit about is I know you've been really active in Allrays. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about what Allrays is and how you actually got connected to the group? Yeah, definitely. So Allrays was started by about 30 women venture capital um, venture capitalists, and their goal was to increase the number of women VCs and then also women founders. And they started a bunch of different initiatives, some that were helping women VCs raise money for their funds, help get women into VC in the first place. And then also one that was helping give advice to female founders raising money. Um, at the same time, kind of in parallel, I had this idea of trying to help get a group of female founders together to give fundraising advice to female founders raising for the first time. Something that I noticed was that I noticed a lot of women struggling to raise their seed rounds, even with a similar level of traction as men um, that, that successfully raised. And so I, I started just kind of myself coaching women to fundraise. And I had this idea of getting a group of women founders to, to do it together. And I bought the domain name Female Founder Office Hours. And I had a group of about 100 women who raised over a billion dollars ready to, to launch this thing. And then at the same time, Allraise announced their initiative called female founder office hours, which was women VCs giving advice to women founders. <laughs> oh my God, they took my name and, and actually, and they actually tried to buy the domain name and they were like, who owns the domain for this? Um, and then I, I met with them and I said, Hey, you know, you can have the domain. Cause like I'm doing something similar, but different and I'll have to come up with a new name now. And, um, and they were like, Oh, well, we should merge our efforts. You know, we're really trying to, we have the same mission and we want to get women founders involved in all as well. And, and so we, we merged the groups. <laughs> and so, uh, so now female founder office hours is both women VCs and women founders who give, you know, um, fundraising advice to women raising their seed round. And we've, we've in female founder office hours, we've given over a thousand office hours over the last year to women raising their seed round. And we've also helped connect them with investors and it's resulted in over 40 investments from our intros. And, um, and now we're actually just launching, uh, we're experimenting with like female founder office hours V2, which is in addition to the, the one-on-one -on -one, like coaching, we're going to run people through four sessions of <clears throat> kind of like seed fundraising 101 um, over either video or in person of like, here's how to run a process. Here's how to make a pitch deck. You know, here's how to get investor intros. And then at the end, you get a mentor one-on-one -on -one to ask additional questions. I love that. I love the whole story to me is just a perfect example of the rising tides raises all boats kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I also think it makes a lot of sense to have both 
female founders as well as female funders or venture capitalists giving advice because you're going to get very different advice from people on both sides of the table. And so, you know, if you only hear one, you might go down a path that probably isn't necessarily the right thing for the business overall. It's true. Yeah, it's helpful to hear both sides because like women founders can say, this is what I did. This, you know, this was hard, but I figured this out, you know, and then on the um, on the VC side, they can share, okay, I see 30 pitches a week and this is what I like and this, you know, and so it's, it's kind of like a different perspective. Yeah, exactly. Uh, venture capitalists definitely have the pattern matching muscle pretty well honed. Right, right. One question just for you personally, have you developed any practices that you use to stay sane as you manage building a company, fundraising, juggling life, juggling all raise, all the different things that you're, you're doing? Um, let's see. <laughs> uh, de- definitely I've started to prioritize sleep. I think I used to not sleep enough and, and kind of compromise on that. Um, and I, I realized that if, if you give up, if, if you compromise on sleep, you're just less able to handle everything. So I've been prioritizing sleep and exercise. Um, and then also I think having a support group of other founders, I have an amazing group of founder friends. A lot of them are women founders. I also have male founder friends too, and I can, you know, have dinner with them. I can call them when I'm having a tough situation and be like, how would you handle this? And you know, partly it's tactical advice, but but mostly it's like just emotional support of someone that's been through it and, and can just be supportive. And honestly, that is the number one thing that helps that helps me get through hard things. Um, and then I, one like tactical thing is I have an executive assistant. Um, we're 23 people now. I think I got one when we were about 15, which I think is earlier than most companies. Um, but I think it's been it hugely helpful for me just to have some leverage. And I, I think most founders wait too long. Yeah, absolutely. You can prioritize the things that take your special skill set. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One last question to wrap it up for you. What is the best piece of advice you've ever been given in your career or in your life? The best piece I've ever been given by someone else? Piece of advice, yeah, that someone else gave, gave to you. Mm-hmm. Well, um, okay. So I actually met Warren Buffett when I was in college. Um, and he talked about basically just go after what you love doing and you'll be successful. And I think that has really stuck with me. And I think that I, th- I th- and I just encourage people to do that because I think life is too short to kind of work on a business or something that you don't really care about, but you think will make a lot of money or something like that. Um, so I'm really grateful that I care so much about Binti's mission. And I think it is helping me be more successful because it, may, it helped me get through that really hard time that I have. So I try to challenge people to be like, what, what is the thing you're most passionate about? And is there a way for you to work on that? What an amazing person to have you, the piece of advice come from. That's a great story. Yeah. <laughs> well, Felicia, thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can people learn more about you and Binti? Uh, well, you can learn more about Binti at binti.com, B-I-N-T-I.com. And then you can learn more about AllRaise at allraise.org um, to learn more about how to get involved as a female founder. Well, thank you again. And looking forward to watching both Binti and AllRaise grow and continue to prosper. Thank you so much. Great talking.